Coming to you from Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love and sisterly affection, I'm Lisa Sharon Harper, president of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. Welcome to the Freedom Road podcast. Each month, we bring together national faith leaders, advocates, and activists to have the kinds of conversations that we normally have on the front lines. It's just that this time, we've got microphones in our faces and you are listening in. And this month, we welcome two guests, Rabbi Sharon Browse, who you may be familiar with because of her absolutely mind-blowing 2016 TED Talk, It's Time to Reclaim Religion. Rabbi Sharon is also founder of IKAR, a sprawling Jewish community that has become a model for Jewish revitalization in the U.S. We also welcome Rabbi Jill Jacobs, Executive Director of TRUA, the Rabbinic Call for Human Rights, an organization that trains and mobilizes more than 2,000 rabbis and cantors and their communities to bring a moral voice to protecting and advancing human rights in North America, Israel, and the occupied Palestinian territories. This is Women's History Month, y'all. It is also the month that the first German concentration camp was opened in Dachau, March 1933. Hate crimes are rising against all people of color in the United States, but it is arguable that no group feels the terror on such an existential level as the Jewish community. I've invited Rabbis Brous and Jacobs to talk with us on Freedom Road to help us understand anti-Semitism, how it surfaces, how to recognize it when it's in the room, and what to do about it. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Tweet to me at Lisa S. Harper or to Freedom Road at Freedom Road Us. And keep sharing the podcast with your friends and networks and letting us know what you think. We love that. Okay, so let's dive in. So Rabbi Jacobs and Rabbi Browse, there's a lot of confusion sometimes about what it means to be Jewish. For some, being Jewish is cultural. For others, it's religious. For others, it has connection to the nation of Israel. So I wonder, can you just break down for us, what does it mean? What does it mean to you to be Jewish? Let's start with Rabbi Jacobs. Thanks so much. It's so wonderful to be here. So it is confusing. Judaism being Jewish is something that doesn't fit neatly into any of our boxes. So very often in Western society, there's an assumption that Judaism is just about religion. But actually, Jews think about ourselves as a people. So the term in Hebrew that gets used is Am Yisrael, which means the people of Israel. It's more like a group of people a tribe even, that's another term, certainly if we Mm -hmm. go back to the Bible, that's a term that gets used. So a people, unlike a religion, has a history and has ritual practices and has beliefs and has a literature and has a land and has connections with each other. And that's why one can not observe any of the rituals of Judaism. They might eat pork, they might not go to synagogue ever, etc., and feel very much Jewish and be considered Jewish, Mm. which I think doesn't, I don't want to make assumptions about Christianity because that's not my field. But I think that if somebody says, well, I'm Christian, but I don't believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, that would be 
Oh, kind of a deal breaker. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For many, right, anyway, yeah. Right. So, whereas somebody could say, well, I'm Jewish, but I'm an atheist because Judaism is much broader than that. Yeah. Also, I personally, both of us actually are conservative rabbis, which means that we have a, a fairly traditional practice, but that doesn't mean that anybody who doesn't have that kind of practice is less Jewish than somebody who does have a traditional practice. Okay, that's helpful. Okay, Rabbi Browse. Yeah, first of all, I'm just so excited and thrilled to be with you, Lisa Sharon, always, and with Jill, who's who's really a sister in the work. And I don't know if you know, but Jill and I went to college together. We've been <gasps> on this journey for a long time I didn't together. I know that. So, oh, my gosh. Yeah, so it's Where? great. Where did you go to school? We went to Columbia undergrad, and then we were both at the seminary for rabbinical oh. school. So we've been fighting this fight together for a long time, and it's mm-hmm. great to be on the same side of history as both of you. So mm. um, so thank you for having us, and thank you for asking this. And I'll just add to what Jill said so beautifully that I also think at the heart of being Jewish is a core narrative. It's a narrative that yes. originates in the Hebrew Bible. This is the narrative of what we call Yitziat Mitzrayim in Hebrew, the exodus from Egypt, this core story of our people's enslavement, and then the partnership with God to walk toward liberation. And that core story is one that has been at the center of Jewish peoplehood for the past several thousand years, is at the center of Jewish ritual, Jewish holidays, the calendar cycle. Even when we enter Shabbat every week, we remember the exodus from Egypt, that this narrative is built into the sense of what it means to be a part of the Jewish people. It comes with a shared memory, but it also comes with a set of shared responsibilities and obligations. And what's really interesting is that of all of the holidays that even secular and non-religious and atheist and agnostic Jews will observe, they'll observe Passover, the holiday where we really dive into this story for eight days in the spring every year. And in part, I think that's because part of what it means to hold Jewish identity is to connect in some way to that core narrative. Mm, That's so good. It's so true. And I mean, one of the, one of my core beliefs actually is that narrative shapes the world and it Mm. absolutely, because it shapes worldview. So now talk to me though about anti-Semitism. What is that? Like, have you, first of all, have you ever experienced it? And what is it? I want to, again, I'm going to throw this um, to Rabbi Jacobs first, mainly because I know Rabbi Jacobs wrote an incredible article about this. So if anybody has not read this article, including myself, make sure that you go Google it right now. But Rabbi Jacobs, would you be able to share with us, what does it mean to be anti-Semitic? And also, have you had personal experience with this? Absolutely. So first, anti-Semitism, we can think about as a giant conspiracy theory, as an ancient conspiracy theory that suggests that Jews are some kind of nefarious presence that is endangering all of society. And that shows up in different ways in different moments. So there's obviously like probably thousands of books written about the history of anti-Semitism. I'm not going to go into all of the details, but anti-Semitism certainly comes up even in the ancient world, particularly in Egypt during the time of Greek and Roman dominance there in terms of thinking about the Jewish community there as some kind of dangerous foreign influence that might be a response even to the Exodus story, which Sharon already talked about, that we have, as Jews, we have this story about ourselves being strangers and then slaves in the land of Egypt and, and being liberated from them. But then really, this is something that I'm, I'm also curious in, in your response and, and your thinking on anti-Semitism really breaks out 
during the early history and medieval history of Christianity because Judaism poses a problem for Christianity in that once there is the Christian Bible and and Jesus, how do you explain the continuing presence of Jews hmm. as hmm. a people who continue mm-hmm. to practice as Jews and have not accepted Christianity. And so Christianity mm-hmm. really struggles with that question throughout history and mm-hmm. the question of whether the suffering of Jews is some kind of proof from God that Christianity is the chosen tradition that, of course, also is used to justify creating the suffering. Right. Jews, you know, whether as St. Augustine says, Jews are like Cain wandering the earth, right? So Jews should suffer, but not be actually, uh, the, you know, slay, slay them not is his line, right? So, and then going into, you know, just in, in medieval times, all sorts of theories come up about Jews as the agents of the devil, Jews as just conspiracies about Jews conducting ritual murder of Christians or desecrating the host, right? So there's all these kinds of conspiracies. And meanwhile, Jews are in a variety of situations in which they have more or less ability to function in different societies, meaning that in, um, and I'm talking mostly about Western Europe at this point, right? in terms of what professions you're allowed to be in. So very often Jews were pushed into, for example, money lending or tax collecting as agents of the king. So then they're seen as they're seen as agents of the king, but also they're seen as people who are connected with money, which is something that people have uh, maybe f- strong negative feelings about. Wait, 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 um, Joe, wait, yeah, wait. Sure, go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> go ahead. So that is deep. I mean, that brings me back to Shakespeare, right? Yeah. Um, oh, and yeah. Shylock, right? Mm-hmm. And do I not ble- bleed red? And but the thing that I I never heard before is that Jewish people were pushed into those roles. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Like, what is that? I don't understand that. What what happened? How did that happen? Sure. So let me tell you something just a little bit more broad, and then I'll, I'll jump into that. So there were lots of sure. restrictions about Jews in terms of where they could live what kinds of professions they could be in, if you could own land, if you could vote, if you were a citizen, if you could be be part of the political process. So lots and lots of of different restrictions that really depended on the the empire or the town or like some of it was hyper-local. And that included um, the Jews very often generally couldn't be part of the guilds, so the artisan guilds. So you don't necessarily have access to that form of profession. Of expression. Well, of profession, really. Oh, yes. um, Right. Mm-hmm. And because there was a stigma about Christians lending money to other Christians. And so Jews were allowed slash pushed into those into money lending. Oh, my and- God. I just literally never heard this. This is what I'm not. My mind is blowing right now. I'm sorry. Forgive me. Keep going. My bad. Sure. Well, Sharon, I don't know if you want to Sharon browse about it. This is so good. Sharon, do you want to add- jump anything or add anything? By the way, this is exactly why we're having this conversation. And I think yes. that there's so much that we need to continue to learn about each other. And I love yes. the frame for the whole conversation that if we were marching together right now, we would be having these conversations yeah. on the road. And yes. so I'm so grateful for the opportunity to have this. And I think there's so much about anti-Semitism that's really misunderstood by people who aren't Jewish, because frankly, if you look at the Jewish population, especially in a place like the United States, mm-hmm. where Jews have by and large as a community really 
achieved an incredible amount of, of access, of privilege, of power, in some ways of success in this country, then it's very hard for a lot of people to understand why Jews feel so vulnerable and mm -hmm. why it is that when there's an anti-Semitic incident or attack that it, it feels like an existential threat for a yes. lot of people in the Jewish community. And part of that is really understanding this history, the way that anti-Semitism works. It is a form of racism, but it operates really differently from anti-Black racism. And so I think it's important for us to understand both of those things. So I think what Jill's pointing to, the history and the origins of this is, is really important. Mm -hmm. I, I also, this, the myth of Jewish power, this mm -hmm. conspiracy theory that's at the heart of, of the oldest forms of anti-Semitism, the idea that Jews control the banks, the media, the government, even the weather, that Jews control the weather. What? This idea that Jews strive for total world domination. Oh what does it mean? What it means is that when they're suffering in the world, those who are responsible are the people who hold the power to control all of that. Right. And so what that ends up doing is creating this really sort of impossible catch 22 for the Jewish people who are both seen as the most powerful and also as the thing that needs to be extinguished in a Yes. So we're okay. everything and we're nothing at once. Okay, wait, yeah. wait, wait. So I'm, I'm literally having a serious like synapse aha thing where like things <laughs> are coming together. Okay. So I'm in the middle right now of researching for my next book called Fortune, A Journey to Understand How Race Broke My Family and the World and How to Repair It All. Okay. Mm -hmm. And it'll be out Christmas time. So there you go. But in the midst of doing the research for this book, the chapter on my third great grandmother, my second great grandmother, my great grandmother and my grandmother, right? Like, so four generations basically of, of women in our family from slavery through uh, the 1940s. Mm -hmm. They lived in South Carolina in Reconstruction and then post-Reconstruction Jim Crow. Immediately after the Civil War, South Carolina instituted laws that locked Black people into only two, two possible career paths. By career, mm -hmm. we're being generous here, right? One is to work in the fields, and the other was to work as domestic servants. Mm -hmm. And so they literally, if you were Black in South Carolina, you could only do one of those two jobs. So that's how I'm, I'm actually connecting with your story through like mm -hmm. through that. This is an MO. Mm -hmm. This is a modus operandi of protecting white power. Yes. Is to, they do it by locking different people groups into particular paths. And honestly, doesn't that go right back to Plato who imagined race to be the thing that organizes the world, organizes society. If you are, but he said it, like if you're a gold person, then you serve society in this way. If you're a, a copper person, you serve society in that way. Well, all they did in Middle Ages Europe was they said, Jews, if you're Jewish, you serve society in this way. But society meant white. You serve the white folk in this way. What do you think of that? I think there's something interesting there. And I would say that it is, it was very particular. Jews often ended up as the middle person. Mm -hmm. So, which is more particular yes. than just in certain professions. So uh -huh. if you are, for example, the king himself doesn't come and collect taxes from you. Right. The Jewish tax collector comes and collects taxes from you. Right. So when you're mad about your taxes, who are you going to be mad about? Mm -hmm. Not the king who you don't see, but the tax or the czar, but the tax collector who you do see. So, so when Jews are the same, when Jews are in money lending roles or in merchant mm -hmm. kind of roles, those are really go between so mm -hmm. that you don't see the person 
who's in power. Just even thinking back to the biblical story, the classic story of Joseph, where when the, during the years of famine, when the people come to Pharaoh because they're starving, Pharaoh says, go talk to Joseph. That's and right. Joseph has a plan, right? So Joseph, you know, Joseph doesn't know he's stepping into this role because nobody's ever had it before. He's oh, not wow. stepping into a Jewish stereotype, right? He's or the Jewish, a classical Jewish position that he's forced into. But mm-hmm. what, what choice did he really have? He could either die in jail or mm-hmm. he could go work for the Pharaoh as the number two, who then gets the brunt of the anger. The other thing I want to say generally about anti-Semitism is that in America, I think for many, particularly non-Jews, anti-Semitism begins and ends with the Holocaust. So there's mm-hmm. a sense of seeing the Holocaust as a singular historical event. Yes. And for Jews, when we look at our broad history, a lot of it is a history of expulsions from just about every country that we've ever lived in to places where we're actually directly killed, like, for example, by the Crusaders to the Inquisition being places where we're killed or forcibly converted either by the state power or by marauding groups of just ordinary people. And so the Holocaust is a particular singular historical event, and it's one in historical memory. But for Jews, it's in a pattern of no place ever being safe. And so Mm -hmm. I think for many of us, certainly this is true for me, I always grew up with this sense of, yeah, America feels really safe right now, but you better have your passport ready. And and I know, you know, from both of my kids had had two passports, both an American and an Israeli passport, because my husband's Israeli, by the time they were a month old. And even though we are deeply rooted in this country and not looking to flee, it's something very Jewish that you have your passports ready because you just never know. Oh, my God. Can I just say? That is like the exact opposite of African-Americans. So I'm sorry, Mm -hmm. I I am filtering this through my own lens of being an African-American, but I do feel like there is so much, there's so much alike, and yet there's so much that's not, right? So this piece, we people were trying to send us back to Africa after the Mm -hmm. Civil War. And we were like, hell no, we won't go. We are here. We are American. And so we like fought to be a part of this system. And yet for the Jewish people, even though there is such flourishing, really, on American soil, particularly in the latter part of the 20th century and now 21st century, there's still the extra passport. That's really deep. What do you have to say about that, Sharon? Like, what's your experience of anti-Semitism? Yeah, I, mean, I, I resonate exactly to what Jill's saying. I mean, mm-hmm. I grew up in a town in the suburbs in New Jersey where there were three country clubs. They all had a no blacks, no Jews policy in the 80s when we were there. The town at that point, there were very few black families in the town, but they were 40% Jews. And there was still a no blacks, no Jews policy. I mean, the idea was this- 40% Jews? 40% Jews. And I mean, there was, this was like high society, white, you know, Protestant community. And so I grew up up with that. It's so brazen. It's brazen. I'm sorry, reason that the policy ultimately, I think that, I think Tiger Woods like was part of the transformation of these, you know, it's like once, once, you know, once there was this realization that if you want the PGA, you have to, you know, change your policies. But Mm. I grew up where, you know, there were, again, this was in the 80s. So it's not that long ago. But we were, you know, after school dance classes that we weren't allowed to go to because they didn't allow Jews to go into those buildings at all. And then, and so I think there is this really interesting question about 
the ways that Jew, that, that the ways that Ashkenazi Jews or white-skinned Jews are able to, in some way, um, blend into white society, and then yes. the ways in which there are limits to that, and yeah. also something that I hope we'll be able to talk about a little bit today, which is yeah. thanks to some really extraordinary work over the last couple of years, we now have some real graphic analysis of the Jewish community in America, and now we know that. 12 to 20% of American Jews are, are people of color, which is something that wow. is wow. If you look at the heads of Jewish organizations, institutions, federations, it's almost entirely white Ashkenazi male. And yes, so, yes. But, so I wow. think that we're starting to grow in our, in our understanding as a community of the uh -huh. dynamism and the complexity of the Jewish community. And, and that's there's really important work, important work happening there. And we're also trying to understand and starting to understand more of the ways in which some Ashkenazi Jews or white-skinned Jews chose to become white or tried to become white in American yes. society and the impact of that. I want to just lift up here the, re the really extraordinary oh. work of a friend of mine, Professor David Myers, who's the head of the <laughs> history department at UCLA. And he's a very well-known yeah. historian mm -hmm. who yes. wrote a book called The Short History of the Jewish People. And he makes this incredible claim that there are two forces that have kept the Jewish people alive for thousands of years, that it makes no sense that Jews still exist in the world, given all of the empires that have conquered and exiled and excommunicated and even tried to exterminate the Jewish people. And he says there are really two reasons why the Jewish people are alive. One is assimilation, which is the ability in many cultures for Jews to be able to adapt, assimilate, become part of the dominant culture to some extent. Mm -hmm. The second is anti-Semitism, because we were never mm -hmm. able to fully assimilate because we were always different. Even when we were in places where we looked like the dominant culture, there's always like the ba that barrier that will stop a Jew from completely becoming whatever the normative dominant culture is. And he makes this, uh, you know, probably controversial claim that it's those two forces, which we see as really destructive forces in Jewish life that end up becoming the two things that have both allowed us to survive and stopped us from being completely absorbed into a dominant culture. These are our stories. You're listening to the Freedom Road podcast, where we bring you stories from the front lines of the struggle for justice. Thinking Cap is a weekly podcast hosted by the Center for American Progress's Michelle Jawando and Igor Volsky. In the current political moment we find ourselves in, full of protests, anger, and activist momentum, Thinking Cap hopes to lay the groundwork for the bold progressive policy ideas we need to continue moving this movement and our country forward. You can find new episodes each Thursday on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and AmericanProgress.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also find them on Twitter at ThinkCapPod. Wow, Sharon, you literally just dropped bombs in that last segment. Yeah. So, so, so let, me, let me pitch this to you. So in Charlottesville, I literally stood there in disbelief, right? When we were in the chapel on the night before the big march and rally, the Unite the Right rally, and we were told that white nationalists were marching toward the chapel. 
And outside, you could hear people chanting, and especially earlier that night, actually, they had been chanting, Jews will not replace us. Jews will not replace us. I thought they were singing, you will not singing, but saying, you will not replace us. But it wasn't. It was Jews will not replace us. And I was like, what? Like, it literally felt so out of the blue since, Sharon, you were there. Like, one of us was Jewish. Like, you know, it's like, what's going on? I'm sure there were more Jewish people in the chapel that night, forgive me. But it wasn't like this was a Jewish rally. Like, why did they do that? Why are white nationalists so focused on Jews in particular? And what's the replace us thing about? So we talked a little bit about that earlier, but this is an opportunity for us to go deeper on that. I'll tell you, I was also surprised. And it was reported on CNN that they were saying, you will not replace us. Right, right. And I'm like, I hear them saying, Jews will not replace us. Right. What do we have to do with this? What are they talking about? I don't want to replace them. Like, I, I was totally confused. Yeah. I think there was a lot of confusion about this. I Here we have to talk about the work of Eric Ward, because I think what oh. Eric Ward has written over the, what, what he wrote immediately in the aftermath of Charlottesville, and then his work over the past several years has really opened up a whole universe of discourse that was very, very quiet before. And now it's become much more mainstream. And thanks wow. to Bill and her organization, Trua, many rabbis were given access to Eric's work. And we were introduced to Eric and able to speak with him. So Eric mm. is, is a Black civil rights activist who was able to embed, as some of your listeners might know, and do research among white nationalists because he said he was a Black nationalist. And the I reason, didn't know that. I know Eric, but I didn't know he did that. Oh, oh my he gosh. Did it. And the what? People are always shocked that white nationalists allowed him into their space. And the reason that they did was because they said to him, we share the same common enemy, the great Satan, which is the Jews. And what he discovered in his time with them, and really, I hope your listeners wow. will read his piece called Skin in the Game, which was an absolutely one of those pieces, you know, it's like a once in a decade piece that changes the way that people think about and understand this, because what did most people know about the white nationalist movement before this? Right. But he discovered the, that anti-Semitism is the beating heart of the white nationalist movement, and that in many ways, anti-Semitism is used by white nationalists to explain black excellence. It's rooted in the most grotesque forms of anti-black racism. You know, honestly, I, I don't even really want you to piece together that logic because yeah. that is freaking crazy. And I don't want people to start thinking, well, maybe that's true. Maybe it, it, No, but, keep going. <laughs> but it's important that we understand it because the people who stormed the Capitol on January 6th, who set up the gallows and who were waving Confederate flags and wearing T-shirts that said right. 6MWE, 6 million wasn't enough. We right, have to understand right. the conflation of Nazi symbolism and Confederacy symbolism that's happening right now. Yes. There is a story to be told here. And as horrifying and degrading as that story is, if we don't understand what we're up against, we are we're being blinded by our own ignorance and we're not actually understanding the threat. And I have to say, I think it's very clear from the Trump era that this is no longer some tiny militia movement that lives up in the mountains that's so marginal that we don't that's have to right. really worry about that's it. That's right. This is in Congress now. And it can was I, in the White House. And can I just say, as a Black evangelical, the thing that just literally grieves me to the bone is that is the case. And it's the case because at least 70% of white evangelicals have said, that's okay with us. 
It's mm-hmm. okay with us to take those white nationalists out of the woods and put them in the freaking White House. Mm-hmm. It's okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I don't know how to hold that in my body. Like there's something, in my, I'm just deeply grieved about that. Well, I'll, I'll say one more word about it and then to pass it to you, Jill, if you want to mm-hmm. c- continue to fill in some of the, the way that I understand from Eric and other teachers, what's actually going on here is that there is this racist presumption among these white supremacists who join these nationalist movements that frankly, black people couldn't manage their own freedom movements. And so if it weren't for Jewish money and for Jewish intelligence, and again, remember the conspiracy theory, Jews are the puppet masters who are controlling everything, that Jews are also controlling black nationalist movement, black power movement, civil rights movement, the voting rights movement. All of this is actually controlled by Jewish money, by Jewish power, which degrades you and me. And so we're all in danger because of that conspiracy. And so that's why they're saying Jews will not replace us. Not that I'm going to go take their jobs, but that you're going to go take their jobs, but I'm the one manipulating you to put you in the place. So it's- Oh my gosh! Exactly. Exactly. And it's so horrifying. And yet it is for, it's been decades now that they've been building this ideology and they've been building a movement around it. And that's why when the president of the United States could not simply and directly condemn them. Yes. We were all in danger, all of us. And it wasn't just Jews and anti-Semitism. It was all people who are striving for liberation, all people who believe that our dignity needs to be made manifest in this country were endangered by that moment. And that was the beginning of the heyday of the white nationalist movement that led several years later to January 6th. And who knows you know, what's, what's right. That's exactly right. Um, Rabbi Jacobs. Yeah. Everything that Sharon said, and I want to just talk a little bit more about this conspiracy theory because that's the place where we started with Mm anti-Semitism, that it's a giant conspiracy theory. One of the classic texts is the protocols of the elders of Zion, which is an early 20th century Russian forgery that pretends that it's a meeting of all of the Jews of the world who are plotting for world domination. It's a forgery that unfortunately has been translated and disseminated and still out there and is still read and that is obviously false. Just have to say that over Uh, and over. Gotta do it. Gotta say it. Um, Yeah. yeah. And so just when we think about the history of anti-Semitism, some of what I described in terms of the early years is really about anti-Judaism. So thinking about, so the question of how are Jews still here? How is Judaism still here? But then what happens a little bit later, once Jews are emancipated, once Jews start to be emancipated in much of Western Europe, following the French Revolution in the 1800s and on, that the question is, well, now that Jews are, some Jews are assimilating, some Jews are taking on other professions that were formerly closed to them. Jews in some places are allowed to vote or in some places are allowed to run for office, right? Jews are, are now not segregated out. And in some cases, some Jews even decided to convert to Christianity. And there's a new era of liberalism, new German constitution in the middle of the 19th century that allows for the emancipation of Jews. And as we know, every action provokes a reaction. So some of what we're seeing now in terms of in America about race is a reaction to people saying, well, wait a second, how come there's so many people of color who are in these powerful positions, right? We see that that reaction. So the yes. same thing where we saw that reaction where one particular German, Wilhelm Marr, 
said, okay, there's actually something new. It's going to be called anti-Semitism. And his theory, he created the word. And he said, well, if you can't, if it's not just about religion anymore, because some people had rejected Christianity, right? And the enlightenment and later, it was all about the Mm -hmm, intellectualism mm -hmm. moving away from religion. So Mm -hmm. if you're not basing your hatred of Jews and Christianity anymore, if Jews are assimilating into German or other society, if some Jews are even going so far as to convert to Christianity, then how do you justify hatred of Jews. And Mm -hmm. his answer, which has continued, is to say, well, Jews are actually a racial group, ethnic group. You can't convert out of being Jewish, right? Because Jews are, I mean, I agree with that. I agree that Jews are much more than a religion, but saying that even if Jews assimilate, even if Jews convert, then what they are is they're an invisible nefarious force. So then it's even more dangerous. And, you know, you see this on the extreme right-wing web. There's whole accounts on Telegram and other of those social media sites that are dedicated to exposing Jews, right? Here are the Jews who are hiding in plain sight in our society. Let's expose them. And we see this as alluded to in theories about you know, it's George Soros who's behind everything, who's controlling mm-hmm. everything. The globalists. If you remember the last campaign of the 2016 Trump election for, in that his campaign, it was like there's people who are pulling the strings and it flashed pictures of Soros and Janet Yellen and Lloyd Blankfein. Like, th- right. These are the Jews who are pulling the strings on Hillary Clinton. Wow. So we see that, that kind of theory and we have language like the Aryan Nations Declaration or whatever it's called talks about the Zionist occupied government of the United States. States Mm -hmm. that's trying to carry out white genocide. And we've seen this from, as Sharon said, in the civil rights era, synagogues that were getting bombed in the 1950s. It wasn't just that they were partnering with Black communities. Again, it was that that they're somehow pulling the strings. And we saw this really, I mean, in this case, fatally in the murders in the synagogue in Pittsburgh, where if you remember the murderer right before he went into the synagogue, he said he was doing it because I don't remember his exact phrasing and I don't know that I want to, but basically he knew that this synagogue was having refugee Shabbat to support refugees. And he said, basically, like the Jews are the ones who are orchestrating this, you know, in his language invasion, right. Of, of people from across the border. It's the Jew. I mean, the Jewish community is very supportive of refugees and and across the board, but like, we're not, you know, pulling the strings and orchestrating some kind of takeover of white America, white Christian wow. America. But that's a theory and it's unfortunately still very much out there. Oh my gosh. Okay. So literally mind blown again. And so here's over the past year with the increase in hate crimes against Jewish people. I mean, you have what happened in Pittsburgh, but now like literally since the beginning of 2020 to now, and especially I would imagine right after the election, going all the way up to January 6th and beyond, I can imagine that the trauma that is living inside of the bodies of Jewish people is like at a pitch. You know what I mean? It's like, like you can probably feel it in your bodies. I know that for me as an African-American woman, as a woman and as an African-American, watching what happened on January 6th, literally my body felt electric. Like all, when I saw that noose, like, you know what I mean? Like when I saw that noose, something in the, I mean, I really, I honestly think that like the DNA that is my ancestors inside of me went, what? Like, you know what I mean? Like they woke up and said, whoa, 
we know this, what, you know? And so, but the Jewish people, the, the Jewish community knows this intimately. And especially since there were Nazi signs out there, there were, there was Nazi language. So that the trauma that we know through the work of my grandmother's hands and the body keeps the score, those amazing authors and psychologists whose work has been critical. And so I just wonder, how are you seeing this impact your communities? How are you seeing this trauma surface in your communities? And what does it look like? And and how are you dealing with that? I mean, it's not just the last couple of months. I think in the last five years, since mm. the 2016 election cycle began, mm-hmm. that there's been a, a significant spike in anti-Semitic hate crimes across mm-hmm. the country, just as there have been, there was been a spike in, in anti-Black hate crimes. There was a spike in, especially in the last year, yes. in hate crimes against Asians. I mean, mm-hmm. we've, against the Sikh and the Muslim community we've mm-hmm. seen, but in the Jewish community, the numbers have been unmatched from what we previously faced for many years before. Mm. And I think that it, in the Jewish community, this is this has been a huge wake up call. Uh-huh. My sense is that there was a kind of complacency mm-hmm. among many people who really started to feel like America is the place where we're finally going to just be safe and be welcomed and accepted, and it could never happen here. And it was impossible not to hear the echoes of the past in Trump's campaign. We were listening to and paying attention to historians. People like Timothy Snyder, people like Masha Gessen, writing and saying what we're seeing now, what Trump is doing is he's following a rule book that fascists used in the 20th century. And while we spent the last many decades building curricula that asked the questions of how could that have happened in Europe, we were now seeing it happen in the United States. I'm not talking about Holocaust level criminality, but we were seeing the building blocks like what oh, happened yeah. in the 30s. And so I think it was a, a very significant wake up call. I also think that. Wait, I'm while- sorry, can I, before you move forward, can I just say very quickly, because I, I think it's important just to stop and say that there was a moment when we literally saw, like, especially since this is the anniversary of Dachau, the opening of Dachau, this is that anniversary. And Dachau was the equivalent of Tornillo here, of, you know, when they opened Tornillo, which was the concentration camp for deportation right after Jeff Sessions announced the change in asylum policy. That was my red flag. That was when I said, whoa, wait a minute, because I had been to Dachau. I walked through it and Tornillo was set up exactly like Dachau was set up. It, it's in, it's really interesting. I think that the Jewish community, when AOC went down to the border and and she used the word concentration camp to describe these detention centers that refugees and asylum seekers were stuck in, the Jewish community reacted in, in two different ways. Mm-hmm. Some people said, how dare you use the word concentration camp, which was very specifically used to describe the experience that our community had in Europe. It meant a, a very particular kind of trauma Um, and violence. And others said that language is not owned by our experience. And in fact, our experience of suffering there needs to awaken us to the warning signs whenever we see anything that comes close to that in this country. And so Mm -hmm. 
you know, and it's really interesting. Some of this goes to questions about the uniqueness of Jewish trauma and suffering. And is there a way to analogize between what happened then and what happens now? For me, I felt, and Jill and I actually went on on a trip down to the border as well. And we saw these conditions together. And Jill's Mm -hmm. been down there a few times since, I think, with other groups as well. And it feels very clear to me that the experience of Jewish historical trauma, the kind of collective Jewish historical trauma combined with our own core narrative of suffering and redemption leaves us with a very particular obligation when it comes to our contemporary reality and not only being on uh, fully vigilant to our own people's suffering but really being st- standing in solidarity being allies and really standing on the same side of history as anybody whose freedom whose dignity whose life is threatened in any way and that's a that's an awakening so th- as I said, Jill and I have been in this work for a long time. We've been involved in racial justice. But what we saw more broadly in the community over the last five years was a much broader awakening, I think, from a lot of people who said, my destiny is tied up in your destiny. And we are Mm -hmm. all a part of this together. And Mm -hmm. we have to use whatever resources we have in order to work collectively toward our collective liberation. And that's actually a really extraordinary turn of events in the community. It's not in the margins. It's actually, there's a mainstreaming of of a kind of activism on alongside and on behalf of others who find themselves vulnerable, in part because many Jews in America really felt vulnerable for the first time in decades over the course of the last five years. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll add to what Sharon said, at Trua, we were getting calls from the very beginning of the Trump administration yeah. saying, how do we become a sanctuary synagogue? And this was from synagogues that ha- that were not activist synagogues, that didn't even wow. have a social action committee in some cases. And we eventually formed a network of more than 70 sanctuary synagogues. And I'll say personally, when I was a kid, I remember thinking, about my best friend's house. My best friend was Catholic growing up and she had an attic in her house. And I remember Mm. thinking, oh, that's so good because I can hide there and her family would definitely hide me. Oh my God. I think that uh, a lot of Jews in this country, um, particularly of of my generation, grew up wondering, okay, which of our friends is going to hide us and exactly where? And that came back for, I think for many synagogues, many Jews thinking, okay, so can I hide somebody? How do I hide somebody? That's right. How do I That's right. somebody? And oh my God. Wow, I'm serious. Like, oh my God. Like, so wait, so there's like literally been a shift where mm-hmm. you've gone from really a community that has a second passport and mm-hmm. is scoping your friend's houses for places where you can hide. Oh, we still you- do that. We oh, still do that. So it's amazing to me. Oh my God. But so, so it's gone from that, I guess, to expanding now to include where can I hide someone? Oh, and Lisa Sharon, God. for some Jews, this has always been a part of it. It's always been both. I mean, literally, when my husband and I were looking at houses, we would say, oh, that's where we'll hide when we, I mean, look, we have the same thing Jill's describing. Even in our own home, we're like, this is where we'll go with the Nazis come. And, you know, and it's part tongue in cheek and it's part rooted in real trauma, obviously. 
But for many Jews, I mean, look at Joachim Prince, who gave this talk right before Dr. King spoke in, you know, in the March on Washington. For many Jews, our identity was staked on being a part of the battle for civil rights, for dignity, for all. And yet for many, there was a great desire to just get comfortable and be safe. And Wait. that was awakened. There was a stirring of the, you know, troubling of the waters in the last five years. And so now mm. even more people have joined this struggle now. Walking Freedom Road from coast to coast and around the globe, this is the Freedom Road Podcast. We're living in the kinds of times that seed books, blogs, magazine articles, and op-eds that move the world forward. Are words floating in your head looking for a place to land? Do you need a safe space to write and share your work with other writers and receive feedback that helps to hone it, sharpen it, make it even better? Freedom Road is launching an international writing group online. Writers from across the globe will come together on Zoom, making space and writing in each other's presence, but in our living rooms, like good citizens do when we are social distancing. (laughs) Then we're going to share what God poured into the world through us. Your one-year membership can lock in your spot in this international writing community, or you can pay month to month. Follow the link in the show notes on our website at freedomroad.us to register today. So in that last segment, you closed our time, Rabbi Browse, with reflections going back to the civil rights movement. And I believe a rabbi who spoke before Dr. King, I didn't even know that. What's his name? Joachim Prince. And he, he was wow. a rabbi in Berlin under Hitler. Oh my God. And he gives an incredible speech that's worth listening to where he says, the most important thing that I learned from being a rabbi in Berlin under Hitler's regime was that mm-hmm. it was not the, it was not the evil that people committed that was the worst and most harmful thing. It was the decent people who stood by silently and allowed it to happen. He said, we stand here as a part of this struggle, not out of generosity from our own hearts, but because we belong to each other mm-hmm. and we are in this struggle together. As long as Black Americans are oppressed in this country, nobody is free in this country. And I mean, that was in the early 60s, obviously. And there's always been that thread running through the Jewish community for, you know, from the beginning. And now, thank, you know, it's becoming even more uh, a part of the mainstream discourse in our community. I mean, I'm literally, honestly, y'all have seriously, I feel like I'm going to have to go for a walk, maybe even a jog, <laughs> and I don't jog, okay? So just, just to kind of work out the energy from this conversation, because y'all have blown my mind like a million times. So as we think about, I mean, something, one other thing, it literally just went, boop, like another, another synapse just connected. That Think about this, that that rabbi that you just mentioned, he spoke less than 20 years after the end of the Holocaust. Less than 20 years. I mean, I, I never put two and two together. It never occurred to me that the March on Washington happened within one generation. Like, 
in the generation after the Holocaust. That blows my mind. Also, something that happened in that time, literally immediately after that time, was the establishment of the nation of Israel. And here I want to talk about this question of Zionism. I mean, what is it? What are the benefits of it? What are the challenges of it? Because it is the one thing that I feel like even Dr. King in in his book, Where Do We Go From Here? He mentions this in 1967 when he's writing. He mentions the frayed relationship at that point between Jewish people and the African-American community. And he says, we got to get over that, people. We have too much that is commonly at stake. But I think that it is this question of Zionism that tends to, it's either a misunderstanding of it, or it could also be the extremists of it or whatever that can tend to get in the way of us saying, okay, we are walking this road together. As an African-American, I identify with the oppression of Jewish people. I believe that our common experience of being scapegoated is what led Rabbi Joshua Heschel to join Dr. King and Selma. And as an African-American, I also understand the suffering of Palestinian people. So I was really, honestly, like, like did, did an inside herky. <laughs> when I read your bio, Rabbi Jacobs, when I read that that you fight for the human rights of Palestinian people as a Jewish woman for a Jewish organization. I mean, the modern state of Israel was established in an age of colonization. In this decolonizing age, do you see a way forward where both Israel and Palestinians can both flourish? What would that require? So there's really two questions here. The first is what is Zionism and its benefits and challenges? And the second one is the question of flourishing for both Israel and Palestinians. Sure. Well, I'm going to separate out a few threads. So going back to the 19th century, when Jews are, as I said, starting to be emancipated throughout the 1800s, and also seeing the um, pushback to emancipation and seeing that emancipation perhaps would not mean that Jews could just live comfortably and worship comfortably and et cetera, et cetera, and continuing to suffer from oppression. And starting to, well, not starting, but asking the question of, well, what can we do? How can we be safe? And there's lots of answers to that question. One thing that I'll say is that the connection between the Jewish people and the land of Israel goes back to the very beginning. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's really important to say that when we talk about peoplehood, one of the aspects of peoplehood is a land. And even to this day, we fast multiple times a year in memory of the destruction of Jerusalem. And we remember the destruction of Jerusalem in all of our prayer services. And so it's very much present. So there was, and that we we pray for the return to to Israel. So there was never a moment the Jews weren't praying for the return to Israel. The innovation of Zionism was to say, well, we could actually use modern political means to create a modern way of going back to that land, either as a state or under, you know, originally under the Ottoman Empire or later under the British Empire as as residents of those empires. That was a break. So I just want to be really clear because sometimes people will say, well, Zionism has nothing to do with Judaism. No, Zionism is equated with Judaism. So the land of Israel is, there's deeply connected to Judaism from the beginning. And Zionism was a modern political movement that said, well, we don't have to wait for divine intervention. We can use modern political means. We can, we can appeal to the Sultan or we can appeal to the British prime minister. 
Mm-hmm. Can um, I just so say, I'm sorry, yeah. can, I, can I just say very quickly, and I, and I, I, I say this with respect, but also understanding that there are going to be indigenous women and men who are listening to this. When you say from the beginning, I think it's important maybe to say from the beginning of the Jewish narrative, which goes back thousands of years, sure. I mean, but the Canaanites may not agree with you. Like, that's fair. <laughs> you know that's fair. I mean? So from the beginning okay. of the biblical story, from okay. the beginning of Jewish, of uh, <laughs> the Jewish narrative. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. So the question is like, so then what? So is there an attempt to return? I mean, there had always been a small Jewish community in the land of Israel living under, you know, different empires, the Ottoman Empire eventually, and then British. Um, so is there, is it that the goal is to return there? Is the goal to create some kind of autonomous district within the countries where, the, where they're living? Is the goal to try to get independence, cultural language independence, etc.? And this is also in the context, particularly a little bit later, between the wars of the minority rights movement. So you have the different you know, Latvians or Poles or Germans, different minorities who are living outside of their own country, advocating for their own rights. Hmm. And so for Jews, but some of that is dependent on if you're Polish living in Germany, there's a tit for tat, right? So you want Germany to protect the Poles. And the tit for tat is that that Poland is going to protect the Germans who are living there. But what about for Jews? Because Jews are a minority everywhere. Right. Uh, there's also in parts of what, you know, now the former Soviet Union, but the Pale of Settlement, where you've got the Russian schools and the Lithuanian schools and the right and the Russian autonomous communal affairs and the Lithuanian communal affairs. So for Jews, well, well, what are we? Where do we fit in? We're not actually Russian. We're not actually the Lithuanian. We're Jewish. So there's a whole minority rights movement that's springing up and there's nationalism. I mean, there's Jewish nationalism and you know, like I said, Lithuanian, Latvian, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Also Arab nationalism. Mm-hmm. So it's in that mix. What's Can you, you know, put like a date on this right around what time is this? Between the wars, between the world wars. Oh, okay. Okay. Right. So mm-hmm. I mean, Zionism started in the 19th century, but the mm-hmm. minority rights movement is really between the wars. Right. Okay. And it's so you know, fast forward through a lot of, you know, the Ottoman Empire turned into the British Empire, right? So the, the Middle mm-hmm. East ends up getting carved up like this is the colonialism that we're talking about the mm-hmm. british and the french and the league of nations right they're they're carving right. up the middle east and they're saying okay well there's going to be palestine and there's transjordan and syria we'll go over here, right mm-hmm. and with the idea being the british were aware that there were two national movements living inside of that piece of land there was the palestinian national movement the jewish national movement they had a fantasy about like one arab state you know they had lots of fantasies which as much of colonialism didn't necessarily have to do with the people who were actually living there And there's obviously a lot of history that I'm just glossing over and a lot of bloody history, a series of riots in in the 1929 and the Arab rebellions in the 1930s. So there's a lot of history there. And, you know, much of it is about the Jews and Palestinians just being often being set against each other by the British colonial powers. Um, So there's no, there's a lot there. Actually, one really crucial book. I have so many books to read. One really crucial book is by Hillel Cohen. It's called, it's either called year zero or it's called 1929. One of those is a subtitle. One's a title, but either way that talks about that moment of really the moment of the 1929, you know, many riots in different places that killed uh-huh. mostly Jews, but also Palestinians as the beginning of the conflict. So you fast forward to 1947, 1948, the state of Israel is created in 1948. You know, there's a partition plan that's supposed to create, there's going to be a Palestinian state and a Jewish state. So we end up with a war that 
for Palestinians, it's the Nakba. It's a catastrophe because something like 700,000 people were pushed out of their homes and were expelled and into places like uh, the West Bank and Gaza and Syria and Jordan and other what are now neighboring countries. And, and the Palestinians who stayed in Israel were under military occupation until 1967. Now those communities are full citizens of Israel, but they were under military occupation. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, 1% of the Jewish population of Israel died during that war, which for Jews and Israelis is called the War of Independence. So there's always, you know, there's yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's different. It's, it's different narrative. So like, and I think it's important, it's important for both to acknowledge both, to acknowledge that. But I, you know, there's so much more to say, but maybe I'll say I know. two more. I'll say <laughs> but you're two doing more a great things. job. You really are. I'll say two more things. One is that I think it's really important for everybody on all sides to acknowledge that there's still two national movements in that piece of land. Very often our conversations are about Zionism. Mm-hmm. And I personally think that we should not use that word anymore because Zionism was the movement that led to the creation of the state of Israel. But when we think about other countries like, I don't know, South Sudan or East Timor or any of the countries that have been created in my lifetime and our lifetimes, we don't refer to them by the movement that created them. We refer to them by the country name. And Ah. many of those countries, you know, there's Mm. there's still many of the new countries in the world, the different Soviet states and and what Mm. came out of Yugoslavia, et cetera. Like there's still violence and there's still lots of problematics in the way that they were divided up or Pakistan and and India, which were divided in the exact same year as Israel and Palestine. But we refer to them by the name of the country. And Mm -hmm. I think it's really important to be able to say Israel is a state. It's a member of the United Nations. It is carrying out an occupation of some 5 million Palestinians. Israel has, you know, 8, 9 million, close to 9 million citizens, about 80% of whom are Jewish, about 20% of whom are Palestinian citizens of Israel. And also there's about 5 million non-citizen Palestinians. So it's important to say that, to say Mm -hmm. this is a state, it exists, it is doing things that are clearly violating human rights. And let's talk about that as opposed to reducing the situation to a theory and often reducing the people to theory. Oh, that's like good. People, that's so good. Right. Like people talk about like the Zionist, you know, they'll talk about right. Zionists when they mean Israelis. And like, you can say Israelis. I mean, another, you know, just an American example, when you think about Manifest Destiny, which caused Hello. deaths, right? Of like, yes. I don't even know how many tens of thousands or millions of people. Millions. Yes. Millions. Right. So, but if somebody is living, if a white person is living in Oregon now, we don't say, oh, they're a manifest destinist. I mean, there's not even a word. That's we, true. Wow. We think about, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about the impact, the lasting generational impact of that. Wow. Okay. So hold on again. Woo, like mind blown. Woo-hoo. Like literally. Right. So here's what I was hitting me from what you're saying. That if we continue to use this terminology of Zionism to mm-hmm. talk about the return to the land, then, I mean, I know you didn't say this, but it's what I'm getting, actually. It's what, it's like another trip down the trail Mm -hmm. that actually it becomes really hard to have this conversation because Zionism is an ideology. Zionism, in some respects, is a religion and you can't attack somebody's religion. You can never win that argument. You can never even come to a reconciled place where you decide you're going to walk together because it's not about walking. It's about thinking. It's about thoughts. And so it's disconnected from reality and therefore disconnected from the carnage. 
So yeah, uh, I don't think I would say it like that. I guess what what I would say, I don't think Zionism was a political theory that led to the creation of a state. What I would say is that instead of talking about Zionism, let's talk about the actual situation on the ground, which is right. So like, let's talk, like, can we say there's, you know, I guess 14 million people, let's say, who are living in this slice of land, nobody's going anywhere. And let's figure out what the right solution is. Let's be practical about this, right? Exactly. So, you know, for me, the right solution is to have two states. You can call it a hard border or more like a kind of EU situation where people can go freely back and forth and live on either side. But to have two sovereign states, each of which is the fulfillment of the national aspirations of one of those people. And I think that if for people who want to be consistent, if you believe in Palestinian national aspirations, then you have to believe in Jewish national aspirations. And I say this to my Jewish family. If you believe in Jewish national aspirations, you also have to believe in Palestinian national aspirations. That's really interesting. When I was there a few years ago to speak at a conference, and it was in Bethlehem, and I met and spoke with several religious leaders there who are Palestinian Christians. Mm-hmm. And one of the, and I don't know, the thing is, because I didn't get to survey a lot of people, I just spoke with them. But one of the things that they were very adamant about is that very few people actually want in the land are actually fighting for two states, very, very few Palestinians. They actually want full inclusion in a d- democratic Israel. Is that far from like, Would that ever, do you think that's even possible? Or did I just talk to some people who actually are not representative of the whole? Do you think? The people you talk to, I think, are representative of the people on the street, at least. The Palestinian Authority still supports two states. And, but, you know, I think at this point, after Oslo, we're 25 years after Oslo. And I think for Palestinians, just your average Palestinian, especially those who weren't even born during the Oslo Accords, they say, well, we we fought for two states and we didn't get anything. Now that's because the Oslo Accords were never, I mean, we never moved into them. I mean, the prime minister of Israel was murdered. It was one of the most effective political assassinations ever. And Israel continued occupation instead of creating what could have been, I think, a solution. But in terms of if it's practical, you know, maybe in a hundred years, I don't know, but it's not something, it is so hard for Israel to accept two states for the current Israeli government, at least to accept two states, that there is not a chance that they're going to accept one state. And just to go back to Jewish trauma for Jews who, I mean, I think most Jews think about Israel as a place that one could go if it's not safe to be wherever one is. And the idea of trusting anybody else with our safety is is one that is very challenging. And so I think for most Jews, both in Israel and elsewhere, the idea that there would be a way of protecting Jews within a state that didn't have that as part of its mandate that I I think that's hard to accept. Wow. That's so deep. That's interesting. Sharon, I don't know if you want to pop in. Yeah, Sharon. (laughs) Well, you know, one of the things that I think is very hard about this conversation is that the word Zionism really means something very different to different people. And so we're Ah. all using the same language, but we're all using it to mean something very different. And so very often in the Jewish community, when we use the word Zionism, many people mean by that, this is the Jewish national liberation effort. This is a movement for a people that has been displaced, exiled, excommunicated, murdered, persecuted, 
persecuted and victims of genocide to finally have agency, to be the agents of our own destiny for the first time in 2000 years of history. And not only to be safe, to find this kind of safe haven and refuge from a too often cruel world, but also to be able to fully manifest our Jewish values, our Torah, to be able to live into our Jewish faith and traditions in a way that, that our systems are designed to build societies of justice and love. And yet we've never been able to do so on larger than the shtetl size scale because we haven't had sovereignty. So there's been this dream for thousands of years that we could build a society again, like 2000 years ago, that really would not only be a safe haven for Jews, but a place where we could fully manifest our culture, our language, utilize all of our intellectual and spiritual resources to become the very best of what we could be in the world. Wow. This is a Wakanda-like dream. For yeah, the yeah, I see right? that. I feel that. Yep. It, it really is. It's like, imagine if the people wow. who have been pushed to the side and murdered and exiled could actually have one tiny piece of land where we could fully realize our own abilities in the right, world. Right. Now, th that is the at the core of the Zionist dream. Mm-hmm. For Jews, for uh -huh. people who, are, who, who resonate to this national liberation movement, the word Zionism means something profoundly different for Palestinians who are on the other side of the Nakba, who see Zionism as the force that expelled them from their homes, where many of right. them and their families lived for hundreds and hundreds of years. Right. And so we're, even when we are in dialogue with each other, when we use the word, they have a completely different resonance for different mm -hmm. people. And so part of this is that part of the challenge here is for us to bridge the linguistic gap so that we can actually hear each other instead mm. of shutting each other out because I am opposed to your version of history and you're opposed to mine instead to try to find our way to understand each other. And I think one of the tragedies of this moment is that we've become trained in ignoring each other and there are camps. Oh, so true. In this camp or you're in that camp. And it brings out the worst. It, it frankly brings out the worst in all of us because as Jill said, there are two peoples that are in this land. Neither is going anywhere. And so we have to learn how to live together. And and you started, mm -hmm. Lisa Sharon, with you said, but when you said, I really resonate to Jewish history and I understand the need for Jewish safety and security, but I also see the need for Palestinian self-determination. And the way that Jill and I see this and so many of us see this is it's not a but, it's an and. It's an and. It's precisely because of my own uh, Jewish trauma. It's because of my own understanding yes. of Jewish pain and Jewish obligation that I will fight for Palestinian self-determination. Mm. Because often when I talk to Palestinians and hear their struggle, I think, you know who's really well-situated to empathize? The Jews, because of what we've been through, right? I mean, it, the ironically, we, because of our own sense of vulnerability, displacement, and pain, are really well-positioned to, to resonate, to understand, and to fight with and for our Palestinian neighbors. And ultimately, we are going to have to build a shared society. We're two American Jews who are talking about this, but there are many Israeli Jews also who are in this conversation with their mm -hmm. Palestinian neighbors who are really working to build shared society, because ultimately, that is the only way that we can move forward. A to the men and the women. <laughs> a, I mean, seriously, amen. I have one last question for you. This is for both of you. With the rise of hate crimes and white nationalist groups increasing in fervor, 
um, and their own passion. Example is January 6th. What can we as the collective society here in the U.S. in particular, what can we do to place a hedge of protection around our Jewish neighbors in particular? And I think that this, of course, extends out to all of those who are targeted by white nationalists, including my own people, African-Americans, including Asian-Americans, including Sikh Americans, including Muslim Americans, including LGBTQIA Americans, and immigrants, all immigrants. We're all targeted. But as we've talked about, there is a particular historical trauma that is playing itself out right now within the Jewish community. How can we, what can we do? to place that hedge of protection around your community? I'm so touched by this question. <laughs> Actually, just it makes me want to cry to hear you ask that, especially in a moment when, I mean, when the Black community has, it continues to experience what you do and what it does every day in this country. And I, I just, I think that we are in a time of great awakening in this country. And I think that just as every person not born into a black body needs to right now be doing the really hard work of interrogating our own internalized racism. I think we also have to learn about and interrogate internalized anti-Semitism. Yeah. I think a lot of a lot of people who think they understand it don't because we're all starting to understand this in ways that we didn't five or 10 years ago. Lord. And ultimately at the beginning and the end of the day, our oppressions are tied up in one another and our liberation. Yes is tied up in one another. And what we have to do is recognize and reaffirm that we belong to each other and find our way back to each other. And this anti-Semitism that we've been speaking about for the last you know, hour, it's there for a reason. When anti-Semitism is on the rise, it's because there are people who benefit from us dividing against each other. There are people who benefit from driving a wedge between those who are fighting for a more just and loving society, because then we won't be able to achieve our goals. But if we really dream of a new America, of what it could look like to build a true multiracial democracy, we cannot allow that movement to become infected by racism, by anti-Semitism, by homophobia, by transphobia. All of these hatreds need to be eradicated or pushed mm -hmm. out. And the only way to do that is to speak honestly about it. It, to interrogate where it lives in our own bodies, in our own systems, to learn more about each other and mm -hmm. turn to each other with love because we really do belong to each other. Mm, yes. It just strikes me that if you haven't done the work of interrogating your own worldview, if you haven't done that, like taking stuff apart, figuring out where does this come from, then you probably are anti-Semitic on some level because we've all been soaking in it in the same way that we can all pretty much say we've all been soaking in white nationalism in America. All of us have been soaking in white nationalism, white supremacy in America for 500 years. It is baked into the structure, the laws, and it's striking to me because I never really thought of it this way, but so is anti-Semitism in a way that I never really considered. And so that's humbling. I guess like truly, I literally, I felt something drop literally in my stomach, like, ooh, I have work to do. I have work to do. Rabbi Jacobs, you get the last word. Oh, thank you so much. First of all, I am also so touched by the question. And so thank you so much for asking it. And I agree 100% with everything that Sharon said. We all particularly those of us in minority communities, just need to know each other better and need to be able to have hard conversations and need to have the guts to be able to say, ouch, that hurt, 
or I don't know if you knew that you're walking into something there or to be able to ask questions and certainly to do that education. Because as I said earlier, I think that for a lot of people in America, I mean, I'll say that right after Charlottesville or Pittsburgh, I can't remember. I think after Charlottesville, a reporter called me, a non-Jewish reporter, and she said, I was really surprised to see this. And do you think that anti-Semitism, do you think we can get rid of anti-Semitism in the next few years? Oh my God. (laughs) And I said, well, and she said, because I thought anti-Semitism ended after the Holocaust. So do you think we can get rid of it now? And I said, anti-Semitism is, you know, more than 2000 years old. So I don't know, but I think really not in the next couple of years, but it just reminded me of what I said before that for a lot of people, it's the, it's as if the Holocaust came out of nowhere and then it ended and everything else is surprising. And so there is some work in getting to, in understanding the origins of anti-Semitism and how it plays out in the same way as as Sharon said, I think a lot of white people have done just the beginning of work, not enough work, certainly in understanding racism. And you can fill that in with all the other isms and phobias that are out there that we just have to do that work and have relationships with one another. Yes. And and I've, it's funny because, I mean, it's funny that you say that because I was thinking, you know, I I can often, and most Black folk, when they hear a white person say, I have Black friends, I'm not racist, right? Like, <laughs> we just like, literally, there's a rolling of the eyes, like, <laughs> yes, I know about your Black friends, like, this is it, you know, and, but think about, but I have thought to myself, but I have Jewish friends, I'm not anti-Semitic, what are you talking about, right? Like, I have gone to Israel, like, I am not anti-Semitic, and yet, I have not done the deep interrogative work that needs to be done in order for me to see the threads of the narratives and the worldviews that I hold in my body because I've been soaking in an anti-Semitic nation for my whole life. And I didn't even know it. So y'all, thank you. Thank you for coming. Thank you so much. The conversations leaders have on the road to justice. This is the Freedom Road podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The Freedom Road podcast is recorded in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. This episode was engineered and edited by David Dalt of Sandberg Media. Freedom Road podcast is produced by Freedom Road LLC. We consult, coach, train, and design experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and lead to common action. You can find out more about our work at our website, freedomroad.us. Stay in the know by signing up for the updates. We promise we will not flood your inbox. We invite you to listen again next month. New episodes drop around the first week of each month. Join the conversation on Freedom Road.